millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. You'll hear our weekly radio show, Resound Here, as well as the occasional story curated recently from our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit organization whose livelihood depends in part on support from listeners like you. To find out how you can help or to check out all of the cool stuff we do apart from our radio show, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. Father, we thank you for this meal. Pray it to bless it to our bodies and bless the hands. I was seeing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder in Philip. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little sonic tidbits we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week. Bless the hands and prepare it in Jesus' name. Amen. Eventually I said to him, Please tell me what this is about. I need to know what it's about so I can help you. And he said, I can't tell you because if I tell you, you'll leave me. Today on ReSound, we dedicate most of our show to one powerful and unsettling story. A man with four children, married over 20 years, hides a dark secret. It's so well buried that it takes a confluence of many seemingly unrelated events over many years for the secret to come to light. And when it does, it tears apart his marriage, his work, and his sense of himself. But in the end, the excavation and exposure of his past saves his life. Before we start, We want to let you know that this documentary contains some explicit material which might be disturbing for some listeners. Here is a sense of duty. Well, I'll I'll try this. It's a Debussy arabesque. Philip and Amanda Gehring celebrated their 27th wedding anniversary this year, and yet for most of that time, Philip carried a heavy secret. Philip is an accomplished musician and composer, performing his music in the Anglican Church. He graduated with his PhD last year from the University of Queensland. 
Through their dedication to each other, Amanda and Philip have come to accept Philip's terrible past. This is their story. Um, I was in year nine and Amanda was in year eight. And also we were part of the same parish. I was involved in the choir at school and so was Amanda. And uh, I think she took a shine to me before I did to her, (laughs) which is often the way, isn't it? But she certainly had a strong interest in me and I was rather captivated by this smile that, that she has. I met Philip when I was in high school. I was drawn to Philip's talent and that he was a very uh, generous person in giving his time to very patiently play through all the parts for the choir and give up his lunchtime whilst the sopranos and the altos each got a break to have their lunch. Um, He didn't have a break and I used to feel sorry for him that he didn't get to eat his lunch so... I took it upon myself to assist him by feeding him his sandwiches, peeling his mandarin for him and popping the segments in his mouth during our school choir practice at lunchtime and I was very happy. Then I asked her to marry me. We became engaged on her birthday in 1980 and then we were married in July of 1982. The offender, Bob Sherwood, had come to our wedding as a priest. He had celebrated Holy Communion and he put his hands on my head and prayed for us at our wedding. And even then, I didn't know that this priest had committed sexual offences against my husband who was kneeling beside me at the altar. What happened was that between the ages of 14 and 16, um, I was subjected to sexual abuse by the, um, the priest who was a curate in our parish. The initial thing that happened was that while standing behind me and I was seated at the piano, he placed his hands on my shoulders and that felt a bit odd to me but uh, because I'd never known anyone else other than family members to have done anything as um, personal as that. Uh, when he placed his hands on my shoulders, he then moved them down the front of my body and then into my shorts and I, that really was quite confronting. But again, you know, when it's that sort of... Behaviour, and we've never encountered it from anyone else. And the person who does it is an adult, and you're only a child. It's uh, it's difficult to explain, but you think, well, it must be all right because you've only dealt with trusted adults before. Sharwood got to know his mum and his dad at church. Philip's dad was a lay reader in the church. His mum was very devoted. They founded that church in that parish. It was a new mission district. Philip was the organist there from the time he was 12. Sharwood arrived in the parish, did not begin to touch Philip at all. 
befriended his family, went to their home for meals, often went visiting. Philip's father took this young curate under his wing in a fatherly sort of helping way. Eventually, Sherwood wrote the new Holy Communion service setting. Philip was only 13. He had only just started learning the piano, but he was a very gifted musician. And so Sherwood asked Philip if he would help him to write the harmony for this service setting. And this was how Sherwood got to be alone with a 13-year-old boy. Then soon after my 14th birthday, I was at home ill uh, with the flu and he came to visit me. And on one of those occasions, he began to masturbate me and I had never experienced that before either. And the only thing I could think of to try to escape from it was to pretend that I'd fainted and I think afterward he thought that I'd been asleep. But that was the difficult thing uh, because there was nowhere to go. So the only way I could do it was really to, I suppose, dissociate myself from it. But I can still remember very clearly the feeling of um, suffocation and and the tightness of breath that accompanied that event. And when they came out of the bedroom, Philip was unable to say to his parents that this priest that they absolutely trusted, cared about, and who was leading this new parish church there, had sexually assaulted him. Sherwood had been wearing his clerical collar and his little crosses on his collars. And it was impossible for Philip to say what had happened. In Philip's young mind, he blamed himself and so he couldn't get out of what he'd now got into and Sherwood continued his offending then for the following two years. In August 1976, my father intercepted a letter from Sharwood, who since March of that year had been serving in a parish in the Sydney CBD. And in that letter, there was indication that improper activities had taken place. I don't know what the actual contents of the letter was, as I've never seen it, but it prompted my father to approach our rector, and it was arranged that I would meet with the rector. When my father advised me of the meeting, he didn't display any anger towards me, but rather disgust at what Sherwood had done to me. My father drove me to Sherwood for the meeting, but I met alone with the rector. I don't recollect very clearly what transpired, but I do remember two things. One, that I mentioned that I was Sherwood's downfall, to which the rector replied that Sherwood had many good qualities which could still be used by the church and two, that I was offered confession. Being offered confession gave me the idea that I had been at fault in what had transpired between Sherwood and me. 
I now believe that that contributed in part to the negative emotions and actions of my adult life. The rector never spoke to me again about the abuse or asked how I was going or offered me counselling or any other assistance. Later on uh, in the following year, Bob Sharwood became engaged and shortly after August 1976 too, um, I became began going steadily with uh, my girlfriend, Amanda. And I took that, both of those things, as a sign that God had provided us with a way to sort of move forward and and, uh, become, as it were, normal. I just want to say right at the beginning, not a welcome to you, or even to you, because you're an excellent man. But a very hearty and wonderful and loving welcome to Father Bob. It's uh, so lovely to see you, Bob. That's Canon Tom Hood at Philip and Amanda's wedding in 1982. He's welcoming Bob Sharwood to the ceremony. At the time, he knew that eight years earlier, Philip had been sexually abused by Sharwood. So I was involved in his wedding as a groomsman and... I reciprocated by uh, asking him to be involved in our wedding, which was uh, nearly five years after his wedding. I didn't actually feel anything untoward at all because at that stage I hadn't recognised yet that I'd been affected by what he had done to me. And it was really only the emotions that came out of that which came later in my life, uh, in my 40s. And now to have the memories of that wonderful event tarnished, um, I find that quite sad and regretful. Philip John, will you take Amanda Ann to be your wife, to live together according to God's law? Will you give her the honour due to her as your wife and forsaking all others love and protect her as long as you both shall live. It wasn't until we were married and we were on our honeymoon that I realised something had happened to him. I had always imagined that he was a virgin, I knew I was, and that's what I understood. But it was when I was on our honeymoon that I realised he had had some sexual experience. I didn't know what it was and I was very confused. I didn't ask him about it because I didn't know how to, Um, but I realised something had happened. We were married in 1982 and in 1979 I did... Well, I believed that Amanda should know everything about me and so I did tell her about it, but I guess it was in such an inexpert and clumsy way and certainly not detailed that uh, she probably really didn't understand the import of what I was saying. Uh, So even though I thought that she knew, actually she didn't at that stage. He said to me something to the effect of he would like to ask me to marry him but there was something he had to tell me first. And he said something to the effect of he was good friends with Bob Sharwood. And I didn't understand what Philip said to me at that point because it wasn't 
within my range of understanding of human behaviour that a man would want or need to do anything sexual with a child. It just wasn't, wasn't there. Amanda and Philip had four children and brought them up in Toowoomba. Philip was lecturing in music and Amanda was a Toowoomba journalist for Queensland's Courier-Mail newspaper. Father, we thank you for this meal. Pray it to bless it to our bodies and bless the hands we prepared it in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip had little contact with Bob Sharwood after their wedding until 20 years later when they were working on a project at the same music school. This was in January 2002. I was involved as a tutor with the Royal School of Church Music that took place at that time in Brisbane and Bob Sharwood was the uh, chaplain for the school. I played for a number of services at which Bob officiated, and it reminded me of those times when he had taken services in our uh, parish church and where I had also played. And it also made me realise, because I had a son who was uh, about 14 at that stage, that at that time I had really been only a boy. And... I imagined if something like that had happened to my son, who was now 14, but just how... or the magnitude of what it is that had happened. At this stage, Philip Gearing had unwittingly kept his secret to himself for 20 years, but his growing realisation about his experiences was building up to a personal crisis. It was having a big impact on him and his marriage to Amanda. I lived with Philip as his wife for about 26 years before I understood what had happened to him. I started to get an inkling of what happened because I started to recognise the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder that he was suffering. And I started to recognise them because in my job as a journalist, I was covering a civil jury trial in Toowoomba Supreme Court and that trial was about the sexual abuse of some children in a boarding school, a primary boarding school in Toowoomba. A former student of one of Toowoomba's most prestigious boarding schools is suing the Anglican Church for more than $450,000 in damages after she was allegedly sexually abused by a senior boarding master in Anti-child abuse campaigners are angry at Dr Peter Hollingworth, who they allege failed to take action over claims of sexual abuse of students by a teacher at the Toowoomba Preparatory School. At the time, I was a mother of four children. One of my children was about the age of the plaintiff in the case, but I didn't have any understanding that my husband was a victim of sexual offences by a priest when my husband had been a child. If I had known that, I could not have reported that case because of the pain I would know I was causing to him. 
As it was, I didn't know. I was causing him pain just by talking about what was happening in the court and about the case. And I realised only in retrospect that bringing that type of information into my home was unwittingly risking his life. There were times when I did struggle with thoughts that were conflicting, you know, there was a turmoil, uh, as I was sort of reliving those things from my teenage. There were times when I really did feel quite depressed. There were times when I was suicidal. I'd worked out exactly what I was going to do and how it was going to be done and where. But there were a couple of things that kept me through that. One was that Amanda was a very good support and it would seem like a waste of her love and her energies to to repay her with, <laughs> with topping myself. At the time, Bob Sharwood was working as a chaplain for the Anglican Church Grammar School, known as Churchy, in Brisbane. The Toowoomba Prep sexual abuse case that Amanda had covered was causing a national outcry about abuse in the Anglican Church. The Queensland Government formulated new child protection legislation, drawing on media reports, including stories she'd written for the Courier-Mail, which had highlighted significant failures with the existing legislation. I felt constrained, first of all, by my journalistic ethics to tell the truth, whatever that is, and to find it. But also I was confronted because I was an Anglican and the church that had done these horrific things to these children was in effect representing me as an Anglican. And I felt in a sense betrayed that the church I belonged to had done things that I as an Anglican and a member of that church certainly did not endorse and would not do and certainly would not condone. Philip started to say things like, why are you doing this? Can't you stop doing this? And I, f I couldn't understand why he was saying what he was saying. I responded to Philip's pleas, basically, to not do it as being just like the church I was seeing being so bad in, in not confronting what had happened and not looking after the children. I just rejected out of hand his pleas. I didn't see behind it a pained person on the verge of suicide because the past to him was being dug up and and he he felt so um, uh, worried about the revelation that he thought might destroy our marriage and his life that um, he was pleading with me to stop. After that case concluded, there were more revelations about Philip. I challenged him after the case that if something had happened to him, I now realised it was possible that a priest could have covered it up because I'd seen it before my eyes, which I'd never believed possible. And I said to him, if something has happened, then you need to talk to the police. 
Although Philip never told her what had happened, Amanda was becoming very anxious, suspecting that Philip could have been abused by Bob Sharwood all those years ago. But because he was in such a fragile state and their marriage was at an impasse, she confided in another member of their parish. I was seeing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder in Philip and I happened to mention to a friend of mine who was a member of our local congregation at church that I was worried about Philip and unbeknown to me, she didn't keep that a secret, she spoke to Philip at church. I wasn't there that day. They spoke to him and said, look, if you know anything about an offender being at Churchy, you need to speak to someone at Churchy and we will help you. Philip came home and he was very angry with me. He felt that I had betrayed him and we couldn't. he couldn't speak. I couldn't speak to him. I didn't know what to do. That was probably the start of our marriage breakdown. It was shortly after that that Philip almost committed suicide. Philip did contact Churchy because he realised Sharwood was working with children of the same age as when he was abused. He drove all the way to Brisbane by himself to talk to the school. It was the first time he'd officially told his story to anyone. So when I determined to go to uh, the Church of England Grammar School, or it's called Churchy, um, the best thing I thought to do was to go to the chair of the board. So I arranged an appointment with him um, at his workplace. Churchy is really a very significant school in, in private schools in Brisbane. And I really just didn't want anything to happen to further children. So I wanted to make sure that they were aware of my situation and to be aware that they're was a possibility that um, similar things may have happened in their school. Driving down to Brisbane for that appointment, again, you know, mixed, mixed emotions. You know, one, having never met this person and being aware of the significance of the school, was a, a you know a, ner- a nervousness. Also, feeling quite daunted that um, this was a very new step for me. It turns out that the investigations at Churchy revealed no evidence of any other children having been harmed by Sherwood. At about the same time, Philip phoned the police from Toowoomba. He did that with the office door shut. I don't know what he told them. He did not want a police investigation. He just wanted them to know and he wanted them to put his name on record somewhere so that if there were ever any other complainants, that he would then be a witness for them. Two years later, another victim of Sherwood reported to the police and it was then that they asked Philip, would he activate his complaint? He thought about that for a couple of weeks and he did. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. We welcome your feedback on this or any other story you've heard on the show. Please send all questions, comments, rants, and raves to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you're just joining us, we're listening to the story of a grown man, long married with four children, who's coming to terms with abuse he suffered at the hands of a parish priest in his adolescence. He's not yet told his wife about his past, but she's growing increasingly anxious about his symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. A reminder... The subject of this story may not be appropriate for younger listeners. Here's part two of A Sense of Duty. Eventually I said to him, please tell me what this is about. I need to know what it's about so I can help you because I didn't understand what it was actually about. And he said, I can't tell you because if I tell you, you'll leave me. And I said, well, whether I leave you or whether I don't is up to me, but I need to know. So he said, give me six months. So I said, okay, I'll give you six months. And it was at that point that I said, you know, time's up, tell me. And that's when he began to tell me some things. And he told me, first of all, how he rationalised it. And that was that his parents were not very wealthy. And if not for Sherwood taking him to concerts, he couldn't have received the musical education that he received. However, it came with the price tag of sex after every concert. And I said to him, well, whilst it's nice that Sherwood took you to these things and gave you this musical education... It doesn't have to come with the price tag of the abuse. I don't know quite how much of that he took in. But over the following six months, his symptoms became even worse. And by the time the the end of the year came, I had pretty much given up on him ever facing up to it. I had reassessed his character. I had assessed him before as being a strong, faithful, good man. But by his failure to go to the police, I reassessed him as pretty gutless, and I told him so. And eventually I said pretty bluntly, well, if you can't stand up for yourself, how can I expect you to stand up for me or my children? And so I... I started to then reassess, well, what else can I do with my life? 
I seemed to have backed the wrong horse. And he also had pretty much given up finding a way forward um, or ever telling me. And so we were pretty much at an impasse. In 2003, uh, when I became aware that there had been someone from another state who had made a police complaint against Charwood for similar reasons, um, that really spurred me on because to know that there were other people and of a similar age to me uh, helped to reinforce for me that what I was doing was the right thing. I felt in a way that um, he and I were acting together in concert in a way. We came down to Roma Street Police Headquarters and Philip then told them what the actual offences were. I was sitting right beside him and that's the first time that I ever heard exactly what those offences were in 26 years. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. I was horrified. I just could not believe that he had survived this. And I just tried to not be shocked. And I wasn't shocked by the offences themselves. I was shocked that these had happened to this man that I loved. In making a police statement, one has to go through as much detail of the past events as possible to particularise them. That was quite a, an emotionally intense and raw time. The fact that I was writing it down initially and in the privacy of my own room was helpful in actually getting the information out. But it did, it did mean that I relived that experience and well, even now I feel a shortness of breath um, associated with it. I saw Philip's health and his demeanour deteriorate significantly over that following couple of years. He had nightmares, he had flashbacks, and the flashbacks were what affected me most. I could not come up to him and kiss him. I could not come up to him and put my arms around him or come up to him and hold his hand because that immediately triggered a flashback of him being attacked by Sherwood. As, as I've learnt, um, particularly from a book called The Body Remembers, you know, they've there are certain things which you're not aware of but which, which are effects of that abuse. And so for a long, long time it wasn't really possible for me to initiate intimacy in our marriage, uh, which of course was difficult for my wife. You're with 360 on ABC Radio National. I'm Heather Stewart and this is the story of Philip and Amanda Gearing 
and how they've been coming to terms with the hundreds of times that Philip was abused as a child in the 1970s in the Anglican Church. Police began investigating Philip's case in early 2004. Only then did he discover both his parents had known about Bob Sharwood's abuse and that they'd tried to stop it. Philip's father died in 2000 and it wasn't until the end of the police investigation in May 2004 that the police said, we need to now go and take photos of all the crime scenes. One of the crime scenes was Philip's bedroom in his home, which was the same home as his childhood home where the offences had happened. Philip's belief up until that time was that his mother didn't know what had happened. He thought at that point that his mother was so ill with asthma and so on that if she was told about what had happened to him and who the offender was, that she would die of shock. He didn't want to be responsible for that and he considered dropping the case at that point. I didn't particularly want to give it up because... I felt that Philip's only chance of long-term survival was to go through with this. So I offered to go to Brisbane and speak to her. I dropped in at her place and I said, I, I have come to talk to you about something that happened a long time ago. It's quite unusual for me because we hadn't had very many in-depth conversations over all the years. And she said, it's about Sharwood, isn't it? Isn't he over that yet? This was a shock to me. And I said, over what yet? And she then described how she had gone down to Philip's bedroom. She had seen Sharwood sexually assaulting her son in his bedroom. Sharwood had seen her. She had seen Sharwood. Philip had not seen her and Sharwood did not let on. She backed out of the room, she closed the door and she subsequently phoned the rector of the parish, Tom Hood, and she could not recall exactly what Tom Hood said but to the effect that he would do whatever was required, she would leave it with him and she was satisfied with what he said that it would never happen again. I then said to Philip's mother, do you remember then later on taking him to the doctor because he had anal bleeding? She remembered that and then she burst into tears and she cried and and she realised that the offending had gone on and had got worse and that her complaint had not stopped it. But in fact, the offender knew that he had been reported, nothing had been done, and he was immune. He could go on offending without any fear of repercussions. When Philip's mother and father reported the abuse to Tom Hood, he referred the matter to his superiors, and he thought that Philip and Bob Sharwood had both been counselled. I'm perfectly happy that my parents did 
what they thought was the right thing to do. And I hadn't been aware at that time that she had spoken to our rector about it. Um, because my father had an illness that could have been exacerbated by um, stress, I believe that's probably the reason she didn't discuss it with him. It seems that everybody seemed to trust everybody else and yet nobody actually talked about it. Yes. Uh, it probably wasn't so much the way that people dealt with things in those days to discuss things openly. What I think my parents did was they simply took action to ensure that things didn't happen again uh, to the best of their ability. Again, by reporting to our rector, you know, they thought that... Um, you know, he would do the right thing because he was the priest. She was the only witness that we had and I realised from my journalistic career that what she had seen was really important because she would be a really important Crown witness. So I didn't talk to her any more about that because I was also a witness in the case, but I asked her if she would speak to the police and she said yes to the effect of whatever it takes to get this bloke in jail. She would do her best to help. And so it was subsequently that I spoke to the detective that she had been a witness of something. He contacted her. She made a statement in May that same month. And in September, she took ill very suddenly and died. The sad part about that was... Because she was a Crown witness, she couldn't speak to Philip. And so because she took ill very suddenly, by the time we got to her bedside, she was unconscious. And so Philip was never, ever able to speak to her about what happened. He held her hand for five days while she was on a ventilator. And eventually we realised that she wasn't going to pull through. So what we did was we went to her one evening... And we, we said goodbye to her. We thanked her for all she'd done. We thanked her especially for trying so hard to survive this illness so that she could give evidence for Philip in this case. We then left the hospital and we went away. We came back um, shortly after and we had a call from intensive care to say she died. She died within one hour of us saying goodbye. Philip's mother died in 2004, yet his criminal matter would take another two years to be resolved. ABC News with George Roberts. A former Anglican priest was jailed for 12 months today for having sex with a teenage male organist he mentored more than 30 years ago. 
The 62-year-old Robert Francis Sharwood of Brisbane was found guilty by a district court jury of four charges, including one each of carnal knowledge and permitting carnal knowledge, and two of indecent assault, but acquitted on another charge of gross indecency. Sharwood had already pleaded guilty to another seven charges relating to the sexual relationship between January 1974 and March 1976, while he was an assistant curate at a parish in Brisbane southwest. After it was all over, the jury had retired and given their verdict, and as they filed past us in a corridor somewhere, they just said, thank you for your courage. So for the jury to have believed Philip and to found beyond reasonable doubt, they had to simply believe him. And I think that's really what led to Philip's recovery. And to have them believe him meant that all the guilt and the shame that he had unfairly carried on his little shoulders all his life was gone. When Sharwood was convicted and sentenced, uh, there was a, a mix of emotions that, that went through my mind. Um, one was relief that the jury had got it right <laughs> um, at the conviction, um, but also a sadness that it was, in a sense, not a win situation for anybody. It was just a very sad outcome, even if it was a just outcome. After Sharwood was convicted, Philip spoke again with the second victim. He firstly, and like a lot of people, um, thought that I was quite brave. I'm not sure whether that's really the right description, but um, there was that. And certainly he was pleased that there had been some justice out of the process. Um, for himself, he, he felt it was a, a sort of a vindication for himself too, in a sense. But it all became really too much for him. I don't think he had the same sort of uh, support mechanisms that I had. And um, you know, eventually he took his own life. At his trial, it was heard Sharwood sexually abused the boy 300 times. The abuse was detected by the boy's father, who reported it to church authorities. The priest was counselled, but allowed to remain in his position. That 13-year-old boy is At now the same time the Gearings were dealing with the criminal case against Sharwood, Philip filed a civil action against the Anglican diocese. He was forced to resolve this before their criminal case was finalised. Information they were presenting in their civil matter was somehow being given to Sharwood's defence barrister and was compromising the criminal case. The prosecutor told the Gearings they might have to abandon the criminal matter if the civil proceedings continued. Philip settled with the church and he had to sign a deed of release stating the Brisbane Anglican Diocese was not responsible for Sharwood's offences. In sentencing, Sharwood presented a character reference from Canon John Steele 
which showed that when he was ordained as a priest in 1973, a majority of the clergy who knew him considered him too immature and opposed his ordination. Here's a reading of that letter, and the Robert referred to is Bob Sharwood. On August the 31st, 1976, I received a surprise visit from Robert. He sought pastoral guidance, and I have until now kept the matter in strict confidence, although the facts of the matter became widely known amongst the clergy, being seen as evidence that Robert should not have been ordained so early. Robert told me that a letter from him to Philip, referring to a sexual relationship, had been opened by Philip's father. This letter proves a number of clergy knew Philip had been abused, but not one of them reported this to police. The Anglican Church is considering whether to allow a convicted paedophile to remain a priest. Advocates for the victims of sexual abuse say the credibility of the Anglican Church is at stake over the case of Robert Sharwood. The Anglican priest will soon be released from jail. The Brisbane Diocese is holding an investigation into Sharwood's status as a member of the clergy. The investigation has... Sharwood was released from prison on November the 9th in 2007. He immediately sought to have the right to hold on to his holy orders. The Anglican Diocese Tribunal eventually revoked them, which meant he couldn't work in the church. But the process put Philip through more trauma. In particular, Sharwood presented a letter from the late Canon Jim Warner, which showed he too knew of the abuse and that the church had deliberately discouraged Philip's father from reporting it to the police. He starts off, My dear Robert, your letter arrived this morning and I was delighted to have news of you. I'm so glad, I'm so that, glad the that the interview with Bishop Wicks, Wicks went, off went off much better than you had expected and, and I am optimistic that the whole thing will blow itself out. Still, you never know and I am sure that caution and prudence are still the order of the day. Hopefully both sets of parents will calm down and Ralph can be very persuasive when he wants to be and I think he will be able to stop the parents pushing things in any sort of legal direction and really thus damaging their own son's integrity. All I would emphasise again is the importance of not having contact with Philip. Life must be hellish for you at present, but rest assured that you have my support and prayers. Hard work and our Lord will get you through this, make no mistake. Do let me know in due course what happens. I am guardedly optimistic. Yours affectionately, Jim. Yours affectionately, Jim. So when you read that, what goes through your mind? What goes through my mind is that at the time... Philip's father wanted to go to the police. He was prevented from going to police by probably the only person who could have persuaded him not to go to the police. And that's because Philip's father was the son of an Anglican priest and to him the bishop was the boss. Philip's parents had founded the church. They had just built a new church and a new rectory, they were heavily in debt. We don't know what Bishop Wicks told him, but he would have been well aware that if the curate who had founded that church had been revealed as a child rapist, then the church would have probably struggled financially for a long time. And I find it obscene that a bishop 
would actively stop a parent of a victim of sex offences from going to the police in order to overtly protect and keep secret crimes against a child. So yes, music was an integral part of my life and it was a vehicle through which different things have come my way. Um, but I would never, I would never change that. It's um, just that someone, knew, someone used it in a way which was not appropriate. Do you ever blame music for what happened to you? Well, no, music didn't do it. <laughs> someone else used it. Um, and music, in a, in a lot of ways, has been the thing which has, um, well, I guess sort of saved me in a way um, because it, it can reach you when words can't, you know, and it, it speaks in such a more eloquent way a lot of the time. And, you know, at that time is when I've been very low during this process. You know, music has actually been very helpful in just restoring some sort of equilibrium. And then the fact that I'm able to use music as an expression of my faith is uh, also very important to me. I was unable to pray. I might have tried, but the pain. I might have tried, but the pain was too big uh, and, and I just cried instead of being able to say anything either silently or out loud. And, and that started to make me question, is this God up there in the sky as I believed? Does he really care? Um... I came to the conclusion that yes, he did, and I, I came back to things that I'd learnt as a very little child, like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and it does. By the time I found out what had actually happened to Philip, my faith was pretty much in tatters by then. What do you hope to gain by going public? Firstly, to let people know that there is hope, that one can survive and that one can go forward, to uh, bring to people's knowledge the fact that these things do happen, that it does take a long time for the victim to come to a place where he or she can um, deal with the whole situation and that there are certain things legally and societally that need to allow people to be able to do that without impediment. Mm -hmm.
A Sense of Duty was produced by Heather Stewart and originally aired on 360 Documentaries from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio National. To read a short interview with Heather Stewart, the award-winning producer of this story, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. And now we'd like to offer your ears a little treat, an audio collage that's as richly textured as the place it was recorded, Queens, New York. Queens is the home of the largest mix of immigrants and refugees in the country. There, producer Judith Sloan gathered the sounds of people praying in different neighborhoods, churches, mosques, synagogues, in apartments, at public gatherings, and in private moments. Her collage of voices is called Incantations. start off in a prayer, and then your prayer can turn in to a song. Nous irons 
jusqu'au bout du monde, le ne périra pas. Nous irons, oui, 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 nous irons, non, non, non nous irons jusqu'au bout du monde. Nous irons, oui, 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 nous irons, non, non, nous irons jusqu'au bout du monde. Chicha, alam alam atade, maramak marame, yektoi trench tare, tare, tita, telelelep, chicha. Oh God. Incantations was produced by Judith Sloan and Warren Lehrer. You heard the voices of men and women from Togo, China, Haiti, Nigeria, Queens, Romania, and North Carolina. Before we leave you today, we want to take a moment to thank a couple of Third Coast magnanimous monthly contributors. In our recent campaign to broaden support for Third Coast, many generous donors stepped up to the plate to help us build a stronger future. In light of their charitable giving, we dedicate today's show to Eurydice Aroni and Keith Brand. Thank you so much. To find out how you can pitch in, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxine. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. The Third Coast intern is Julia Weatherall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to the many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. 